Section 2 of The Rover, Volume 1, Number 17. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Rover, Volume 1, Number 17, edited by Sebus Smith and Lawrence Labrie. Section 2. The Log Driver, A Tale of the Kennebec by Lawrence Labrie. It was the evening of the 3rd of July, 1828. The declining sun was casting his dying colors over the surrounding country, softening the misty atmosphere over hill and dale with a mellow and cheerful light, and tinting with purple and gold the fleecy clouds that hung in ponderous piles along the whole extent of the western horizon. High in the air the whippoorwill uttered its melancholy note, and the nighthawk, circling its airy flight overhead, seemed to tell you with its peeping voice how happy it was to dip its graceful wing in the beautiful soft twilight of summer. The lowing of herds, the tinkling of bells, the merry laugh of the peasant girl, and the lively, well-meant jest of the village youth lent a cheerfulness to the scene and imparted a quiet to the heart which the most gloomy could not entirely resist. There is something sweet and holy about sunset in the country, it enlivens and expands the heart and brings forth from their secret hiding places the deep-voiced and impassioned thoughts of the mind, giving it a calm and grateful feeling to the author of all good for the benefits and many mercies he has bestowed upon us. It is not singular that man, endowed with the supreme faculty of reason, should run through his life in riot and debauchery, oppression and warfare, trampling upon the weak, gratifying his own base desires, and seeking to monopolize all the benefits and luxuries of life, unmindful of the past, abusing the present, and giving no thought to the future, striving to believe there is time enough to talk of that when he shall become too old to enjoy existence. Vain creature, how uncertain is life! At any moment, without a warning voice, the dread conqueror, death, who misseth no man's door, may, with his chilling breath and frosty hand, summon us away to that undiscovered country from whose bourn no traveler returns. Heed the warning, heed the warning, let not the enemy strike, and no preparation of defense made. In the still watches of the night, dream not of security, for even then the invisible hand of the destroyer may be above thy pillow. But to our tale, the bright sun was bidding the day farewell as Norman Murray and Mary Lindsay rambled along the banks of the Kennebec at that point above the falls of Skowegan, where a graceful bend in the river sways its smooth and swelling tide into the broad basin that nurses for a moment its dark waters ere they fling themselves in maddening riot and confusion over the dashing cataract below. Though the force of the fall is doubtless weakened by an island that rises up in the middle of the river, turning one half the stream to the right, still the height of the precipice and the body of water falling over it is such that many a fearful tale is told of fatal accidents and hair-breadth escapes. We have introduced you, indulgent reader, to two of the leading characters of our drama. Shall we leave them in silence as they actually walk for half an hour? while we describe the beauties of the Kennebec, the thunder of Skowegan, the enterprise of the villages on either side of the river, 
the neat white congregational meeting house in Bloomfield with its bright tin spire and the gray barn-like one opposite, Baptist, if our memory serves us. Shall we tell of the merry peals of the two bells on a Sunday morning, of the smart things said some sixteen years ago, when the bells were first introduced and raised to their present high station, how they may be heard of a clear day for miles, sending their echoes over the hill and over the dale, through the villages and over the water, and all through the big forests that loom up everywhere around, like great blue clouds. Shall we tell how those two bells came all the way from Boston? Perhaps, if the clarion doesn't contradict us. Shall we tell how often, with Uncle Joel and Kate and Sophia, Aunt seldom went to meeting then, we have sat in the little white meeting house, looking all around and thinking of anything but the sermon, and aching to get out and be in the river or on it in a dugout or log canoe. Shall we tell you of the hum of the grist mills, sawmills, and all other mills, of taverns and dusty countrymen, of stores where they sell in the same room, liquor by the three-cent glass, you can sweeten it with molasses, W.I. goods and groceries, English and French dry goods, done fish, smoked herring, hardware, produce, etc., etc., besides everything else that a family may want to use in a whole year. Above all, shall we tell you of the industry and integrity of the people and their prosperity, of the frugal housewives and their pretty lasses all in bloom and blossom? Shall we tell you all this while Norman and Mary are walking in silence by the murmuring water? If we should, you would all know what a delightful place it is, and how happy are the people. Happy? You would think so, if you had seen them as we have, at a general training or muster. They burn so much powder, and make such furious joy. Oh ho, says the clarion, you have been among us. Indeed we have. Fourteen years ago, last New Year's, we skated all day long on the Kennebec, and many a time before that. But that was the last time. We were there when the incident that forms the subject of our story occurred, hoeing corn all day long in the boiling hot sun. But we were none the better pleased for that, for we were deprived of our holiday as punishment for something we knew not of. But we were revenged, for one day, many days after that, we feigned a sick headache to escape work. We were too sick to do anything. Our head ached terribly. Well, we were offered ninepence to pull flax all day. Ninepences were scarce. We took it. Pull flax all day in the hot sun for ninepence with the sick headache. Wonderful endurance. Yes, we have been among you, ladies and gentlemen of Skowhegan and Bloomfield, rambling over the hills and paddling in the river, and the memory of those times is dear to us yet, and our residence there was one of the green spots in our existence. May we sometime meet again, fare you well. We left Norman and Mary walking together in silence, but the mute converse of their hearts conveyed the eloquent thoughts of each to the other, and many a sweet thing was fancied, and many a rapturous feeling glowed in their hearts, which seemed to wall them round with an invisible paradise of bliss. They were fondly attached to each other, and as all things smiled propitious on their love, the evening of the succeeding day was appointed for their nuptials. The nearness of the long-anticipated period gave to Mary a feeling of timidness 
and she had thus wandered forth to enjoy the beauties of the surrounding scenery and to inhale new life after the sultry heat of the day from the refreshing coolness of the twilight breeze. Mary was first to break the silence. My dear Norman, why do you not leave your arduous and toilsome occupation? Why are you still a log driver? Because I enjoy its excitement, Mary. But it is dangerous, therefore it may be for death. Because of its danger do I like it. It is a glorious life to me, so exhilarating, so full of incident, without which I could not endure it. But Norman, I do not wish to have you continue it. I like it not. I cannot bear its excitement when I know that he whom I love better than life itself is exposed to its dangers. Dear generous girl, but why so opposed to it? Surely there is not as much danger as you apprehend. There may not be, Norman, but my fears magnify an hundredfold, and I cannot be happy while you are exposed to danger. Danger has charms for me. I love the sound of the rushing stream and the roar of the cataract. I would have such for my death knell. I love. What else does Norman love? I love you, Mary, better than all these, better than earth or air, better than my existence. Then let me entreat you to forswear this slavish toil. Slavish, we leap with the torrent. Slavish, by my right hand, it is the most perfect liberty. Well then, these hardships, privations, and severe duties, I will not say, by the love you bear me, but for my sake I beg of you to quit it. You do not follow it from necessity, wherefore then do you continue it? For your sake, Mary, I will do anything, but... Ah, now, Norman, no buts. Promise me that you will have no further connection with the business. But this summer, no. This month, this one month, no, no. It must be now. Promise me that you will not drive another log. Mary, I cannot promise that. Look at Skowhegan. There are five hundred logs that have formed a press on the pitch of the falls. They must be got off tomorrow. It is a bad job, and my companions would say I left them through fear, should I refuse them my assistance, and they shall never say that. Those logs off, sweet Mary, and I promise you it shall be my last at log driving. Why go at all? Yet you have told me. I feel that there is danger connected with yonder logs, for to me they look ominous. Norman, do not go. Mary, I have acceded to your wishes almost as you required. Be therefore generous, and leave me the one day I crave. Be it so, Norman, but I fear that I shall have cause to rue it. I have ever had a presentment that some ill would befall you near this place. I never look upon those dashing waters that I do not associate them with some idea of horror. Speak not so, Mary. Although I heed not presentments and omens, yet it gives me unpleasant thoughts to hear you speak of them. Do you not think, Norman, that they are sent by the unseen power to warn us of approaching events that, if we cannot shun, we may be the better prepared to meet them with becoming fortitude? I think that what you call presentment arises through fear, and when we form a strong attachment to any person or anything, and adopt a certain dread of any event that might occur, which would deprive us of any dear friend, or make reality of any imagined evil, those thoughts will, if suffered to linger, magnify into fears, and those fears become presentments. This, I think, is the true anatomy of a presentment. 
Do you not believe then that coming events cast their shadows before? I cannot. Why should they? Has there been thus far anything sad or sorrowful in our lives that we should anticipate evil? Alas, the less able should I be to bear it. Continual affliction strengthens the heart until it becomes hard and callous to misfortune. But I, who have scarce ever known sorrow or disappointment, should sink under the weight of blighted affection. Pray God I never meet the trial. Heaven forbid. Our hearts, Mary, have long been united. Tomorrow unites our hands. Then shall we have passed the Rubicon, whence there is no returning. Then shall have been spoken the holy rite and the solemn vow that bind us forever. Do you not, as I do, hail with joy the approaching event? Do you not think from that time we may date our real happiness? I hope so, Norman. That I hail the event with joy is true, but there is a pleasing sadness connected with it which I cannot divest myself of, yet I would not have you participate in it. Do I not love you, Mary? Have I not knelt in the deep and pathless wood for you, and by the river's side? Have I not sought your love and obtained it, your will to be mine, and it was granted? And does not tomorrow's eve unite us forever? Why then should I be sorrowful? With so much happiness before me, what cause have I for sorrow? We will live hereafter with and for one another. We will let no imaginary nor anticipated evils disturb us. It shall be my fondest and proudest endeavor to promote and ensure your happiness, and may death find us in old age after a long, happy, and useful life, ready to depart together. Think you shall never change? Ungenerous girl! Forgive me the thought. One loving less than I would fear less. Doubt you? No. Had I a thousand times more delay upon the cast, I would venture all for you. Oh, leave then, leave this toilsome and weary life which you follow with so much zest, and occupy your mind with something more befitting your abilities. I will, tomorrow. Tomorrow? I thank you, Norman. Yes, I thank you. I am so pleased to think of it. Tomorrow. After tomorrow, I promise to devote myself to you. And now, Mary, had we not better return? The air is getting damp with the heavy dew. Mary only answered with a sigh, and clinging closer to Norman, they returned to the house of her father, about a quarter of a mile from the falls. The morning of the fourth, that hallowed point of time in our national history, round which our fondest memories gather, was ushered in by the roar of cannon and the ringing of two aforesaid meeting-house bells. It was a bright and joyous morning. Not a cloud floated on the lazy atmosphere, and the sun arose like some mighty deity, imparting brilliancy to the scene, and lighting with a happy smile of pleasure the dark and healthful features of the peasantry. Norman arose as Aurora shed her earliest plume to join in the festivities of the day, for having so much cause of happiness himself, he could not resist the temptation to participate in the ceremonies of the celebration, as to him that they possessed a double interest, and he forbade a melancholy thought to intrude upon his mind. The early part of the day passed off as such great days usually pass off in Skowhegan, and every face wore a smile of satisfaction. About one o'clock, Norman, with several others, repaired to the falls to clear off the logs that had lodged on the rocks above. On that side of the precipice nearest the island, 
several rocks projected above the surface of the water, and against these a large log head lodged crosswise, which caught others as they descended to the fall, thus forming a press of some hundred logs. And when Norman and his companions arrived at the spot, they questioned each other as to the best method of dislodging them. It was finally settled that the quickest and best way to accomplish their object would be to cut the foremost log until the pressure of those above should break it, when the entire mass would sway round and pass over without further difficulty. But this was a hazardous task, and who would undertake it? Who of the party was bold enough to venture, and standing on the brow of the precipice, facing the abyss below, to commence the task of cutting the huge timber? It could be done. All that was required was judgment and quickness, for one leap would put the person safe on shore. After a few moments' debate, a young man, bold and reckless, jumped upon the foremost log and commenced cutting. He soon came off, however, declaring that for all the logs that ever floated down the Kennebec, I will not raise my axe again. You are a coward, Amesford. Give me the axe, exclaimed Norman. I will cut the log, for it is my last job of the kind, and I wish to finish it like a man. No, no, Norman, be not rash, shouted one of the party. My life upon it, there is danger in the attempt. And mine upon it too, cried Norman. Danger, I never yet did shun. And with a light step he sprang upon the log. Norman, Murray, be cautious, man. This rope, let this rope be tied round you. No ropes for me, he shouted. Come back, come back. The log will break in a moment without more cutting. See, it bends even now. Norman. But he heard them not, or if he did, he heeded not. He had reached the center and stood with his face toward the fatal chasm, which boiled below like a mighty cauldron. A smile of pride was on his face. He cast a look of triumph upon the shore, thronged with people who came to witness the success of the log drivers. He raised his axe, struck once, twice, thrice. There it stuck. The log cracked. It trembled for an instant like a thing affrighted, and then, as the multitude around stood breathless, came a crash and one piercing cry of agony, and Norman Murray fell forward into the foaming waters below. Then an exclamation of horror burst from his comrades, and instantly a rush was made to the scene of the disaster while the logs came tumbling and pitching down. All stood aghast, for no human arm could yield him succor. For an instant he was lost amid the whirling mass, but on a sudden a cry of joy burst from the crowd around, for their eager eyes beheld him rise through the foam and strike out toward the shore. He approached so near that his right hand was laid upon the flat surface of a rock. He is safe, he is safe, cried an hundred voices. No, for just then a large log, like a malicious and evil monster, came gamboling and rolling along, and struck Norman in the head, sending him with much force back again into the whirling current. The multitude now rushed to the other side of the bridge and to the shores below it. Again he was seen to come to the surface, but nearly exhausted, and his efforts to swim were very feeble. The river at that place being deep and the current strong, he was carried into a whirlpool a short distance below the bridge, from which he was unable to extricate himself, and in a few seconds he sunk to rise with life no more. Thus terminated the existence of Norman Murray, a young man beloved by all who knew him, 
and who promised fair to become a useful member of society. As he was seen to sink, a groan of woe burst from the assembled spectators, and with downcast faces and mournful looks they left the spot to communicate the sad event to their friends. But there was one destined too soon to listen to the awful tale. The wedding of Norman and Mary was to have taken place at the house of an uncle of the bride's, who resided about three miles from her father's. For that purpose, in the early part of the day, Mr. Lindsay, with his wife and daughter, she was an only child, departed for the residence of his brother, where considerable preparation was making for the ceremony, and where, as soon as his business was ended, Norman was to join them. News of disaster is apt to travel fast, but the public mind being then so occupied with the exciting festivities of the 4th, together with the absence of Mr. Lindsay's family, prevented any immediate communication to them of the fatal event at the falls. Thus at length the day faded into twilight, and the bride, her father, and her mother wondered at the absence of Norman. Patiently they sat in their neat little parlor, while the evening breeze sighed murmuringly through the open lattice, and the cricket chirped beneath the hearthstone. Mary was pale, and her innocent heart fluttered with strange emotions. A voiceless feeling of suspense, the first bud of doubt, which she would not acknowledge to be doubt, an upbraiding thought which her delicate love used all arguments to overcome, an apprehensive fear which hope, the angel, murmured against, touched at times her trembling nerves, sweeping over them like sad music over the strings of a lute. A tear, like sparkling dew, moistened her fringed eyelids, and she heeded few words that were spoken, so rapt seemed she in the deep mysteries of her own heart. Moment after moment passed away, the minister had arrived, but the bridegroom, Norman, was still absent. Wonder grew into conjecture, conjecture into alarm. Mr. Lindsay sought some excuse for his absence in the excitement of the day, and yet he had never known him break his word before. Mary sat at the window with her eyes fixed upon the road up which Norman must pass to reach the house, and almost held her breath to catch the slightest sound that might herald his approach. Unwitting doe, she could neither see nor turn aside fate's unerring shaft. Poor Norman, calm wert thou in thy deep sleep beneath the cold dark water. Oh, how willingly wouldst thou have met thy bride that evening! With what a beaming eye and joyful heart wouldst thou have clasped her to thy bosom! But alas, such bliss was not for thee! Little didst thou ever dream that thy nuptial couch would be the cozy bed of the river! Weep for the heart that must be broken! Weep for poor Mary Lindsay! As she sat watching every person that approached, listening to every falling footstep until her heart grew chill, and her cheek pale. Alone she could have wept like a child, but there the tears fell silently, and the burden of her grief was stifled in her bosom. One horned thought clung to her, the falls, the logs. Yet another hour passed away, bringing no Norman, and Mary now groaned aloud in her agony. Mary, my poor girl, said her father, reason with your grief. Norman is a true lad and would not play you false. Some unavoidable delay must detain him. He may have deferred driving the logs over until sunset, or they may have given him trouble. They may have given him trouble, father, she answered with a meaning and startled voice. The logs, merciful heaven. My dear child, said Mrs. Lindsay, do not needlessly alarm yourself. 
Norman will soon arrive and will be able to explain the cause of his delay. Oh, mother, she cried, I cannot help it. There is a fate awaits me which I cannot shun. There is a load at my heart, a grief I cannot speak. Whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth, exclaimed the minister. In the midst of life we are in death. Death? Did you speak of death? Alas, poor Norman, shall I never see you again? Hark, hark, he comes, he comes. Did I not say he would come? Look there, look. As fast as horse can bring him, dear mother, I shall be happy. I am happy now. All listened. They could distinctly hear the sound of a horse's hoofs coming at full speed up the road toward the house. Mr. Lindsay and his wife went to the door. Mary moved not from where she sat, having resolved, as a slight punishment for the distress Norman had caused her, not to meet him as he entered. The horseman rode up to the house, dismounted, and advanced to the door in which stood Mr. Lindsay. He at first seemed embarrassed with the burden of some difficult message that appeared to puzzle him how he should best deliver it. Mr. Lindsay perceived his embarrassment, and a vague suspicion crossed his mind that the man came the bearer of unpleasant tidings. He was, therefore, the first to break the silence. "'How is this, Amherst?' asked Lindsay. "'You come to me a dumb messenger?' If you have ill news for us, out with it, man. Surely nothing pleasant to hear would be so slow in coming. I would not willingly be a bearer of ill tidings. Mine is an unpleasant task. Mrs. Lindsay, take courage and draw largely upon your strength of reason. I am indeed the messenger of most woeful news. I can conceive it all, said Mrs. Lindsay. Some misfortune to Norman, is it not? Speak softly. It is, replied Amherst but it will fall heavier upon others than upon Norman. They have yet to suffer, long, long suffering. Norman's is... Over, you would say, Amherst, exclaimed Mr. Lindsay. You have no doubt come to tell us that Norman is dead. A shriek, one heartbroken shriek, and the lifeless form of Mary fell upon the hall floor behind them. In suspense at the conversation between her parents and Amherst, she had stolen cautiously behind them, where she heard those fatal words, Norman is dead. They broke her heart, poor girl. Oh, my daughter, my daughter, cried Mrs. Lindsay. Mary, my dear broken-hearted girl, look up, or you will kill your poor mother. And she knelt on the floor beside her and pressed her death-pale cheek to her bosom and kissed her sweet lips. Means were quickly resorted to for her resuscitation, and anxiety and grief were pictured on every face. For several moments no signs of animation appeared, and the sterner eyes around were wet with tears like woman's at the piteous sight they gazed upon. Tears from all but the father, he stood over the prostrate form of his child, speechless and tearless, for this calamity had left him without word or motion. When Mary at last opened her eyes, she looked eagerly upon the faces of those around her, and then clinging closer to her mother, she exclaimed, Hissed, Norman, are we not wedded? They said that you were dead, but I would not believe them. I knew better than that. I am not Norman, dear child, exclaimed Mrs. Lindsay. I am your mother. Do you not know me? Not Norman? No, no. But you are not my mother. My mother, why, she has been dead this many, many a year, and I am a poor, lonely, miserable orphan, without parents or friends, no home to shelter me from the cruel storms. Oh, I am freezing, but there is a furnace in my head burning, burning there. Norman, dear Norman, hark, I heard him call me.
Did you not? She arose from the floor. Again, did you not hear him call me? Then let me go to him. Will you not? But I will, though. Norman, only speak to me, and I will fly to you. Ha! See? See? He stands upon the falls, with the crazy, dashing waters leaping all around, and the big logs striving to fall upon him. Now he waves his hand for aid. Will you not save him? See, he trembles. He falls. Lost. Lost forever. Lost. Here she again fell senseless into the arms of her father, then broke forth the fountains of his grief, and he raised his eyes toward heaven, exclaiming, O God, have mercy, for surely this day hast thou stricken us with a grievous affliction. Mary remained insensible for nearly half an hour, but when life again appeared and speech returned, she continued wandering in mind, wild and feverish. At times she imagined herself married, then for a few moments she would seem happy. Again she appeared to have some faint idea of her true situation. Then her moanings were piteous to hear. Thus passed she the night. Nothing that could be done for her seemed in the least to give her quiet. In the morning a brain fever had set in and a physician was sent for. He exercised all his skill. He tried his best remedies. Nothing seemed of any avail. She hourly grew worse, and ere the sun of that day went to rest, her gentle spirit, like Noah's dove, went out from its ark a third time, never to return. It found a heaven to rest its weary wing in and sweet communion with blessed and kindred spirits. She left a heritage of woe for her parents, grief and its cankerworm, for their hearts were left to mourn and wither over the memory of their lost daughter, and they were taught to look upward and to fasten their hopes upon the perfect state of bliss in which only they might expect ever again to meet their lamented child. She was laid beneath the green turf of the village churchyard, and over her grave the early sweet spring flowers blossom, and on summer days fair maidens like herself bring garlands of bright roses to stew upon her lowly resting place. Birds warble their tinkling music around, and in moonlight nights, when the glittering stars peep out upon the sleeping earth, the pure dew of heaven falls softly over her. A few days after the death of Mary, the body of Norman was found about three miles below Skowhegan and conveyed back to the village and interred by the side of his Mary. Peace to their manes. End of section two. Recording by Bryce Cries, Youngstown, Ohio, July 5th, 2021.